Hello and welcome to a joint episode of the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast. I am Andreas Guidi. And I am Jovo Miladinovic. Today, we will be discussing how the Muslim population of Bulgaria experienced the end of Ottoman rule and the construction of a new nation-state. We met with Milena Metodieva, assistant professor at the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Civilization at the University of Toronto. In her new book entitled Between Empire and Nation, Muslim Reform in the Balkans, published by Stanford University Press, Milena focused on the leaders of the reformist movement among Bulgarian Muslims. By analyzing their ideas and publications, the book draws a fascinating picture in which these Muslim intellectuals and activists are seen as part of a larger world, including exchanges with regions such as Central Asia, other Balkan territories and, of course, the Ottoman Empire itself. Milena will introduce us to the story of how the community navigated the transition from empire to nation as an active player, addressing the question and the meaning of progress, of civilization, of education, but also of Islam and national belonging. But who was part of this community? How large was it? And what was the national and international context in which Bulgarian Muslims debated these issues? The Muslims in Bulgaria, similar to other Muslim communities in the Balkans, have their origins in the period of Ottoman rule in the region, during which, as a result of migration and conversion to Islam, uh, we see the formation of uh, Muslim communities throughout the region. So when it comes specifically to the Muslims of Bulgaria, something like you know, more than 90% of them were uh, Turkish-speaking Muslims or Turks, uh, and uh, then there were smaller communities of Muslim Roma, Tatars, Pomaks, which are you know, the so-called uh, Bulgarian-speaking Muslims, so, you know, Slavic-speaking Muslims, and also Circassians, you know, which came in the 19th century. Uh, and the Circassians were actually you know, the only Muslim group which was not allowed to stay in Bulgaria after 1878. Most of the Muslims were Sunni. However, they were also the representatives of uh, unorthodox Muslim groups, such as Alevi and you know, Kuzobash. We don't actually know much about them during this period. So through the 19th century, uh, the Ottoman Empire faced uh, a number of challenges, such as territorial losses, the emergence of first Balkan nation states, such as you know, Serbia and Greece. But also it became uh, the subject of European discourses, uh, according to which Muslims in general were presented as uh, being fanatic, backward and uh, uh, unable of being part of European civilization. Also here, I would like to mention uh, the significance of the Tanzimat reforms, which was this uh, massive uh, state-led uh, reform project in the Ottoman Empire aimed to transform the Ottoman state, you know, the Ottoman provinces uh, during this time. Uh, and in fact, when it comes to provincial reform, the Danube province, uh, which became the core of the future Bulgarian state, was the province where the Ottoman reforms made some of their most significant uh, achievements. So, you know, subsequently, the loss of these territories was a huge blow to the Ottomans. The establishment of Bulgaria in 1878 came following a very turbulent period. One notable event was the Bulgarian uprising, which was suppressed by the Ottoman authorities and led to significant outcry uh, in Europe. And the other important event uh, is uh, the Russo-Ottoman War of 1877-78 and the subsequent end of Ottoman rule over large chunks of the Balkans. Uh, and, uh, you know, the main theater of the war uh, was a territory of what would be 
become Bulgaria. And the war was connected with significant brutalization, you know, killing and expulsion of Muslims. So it's difficult to provide an estimate of the exact numbers of Muslims, you know, who fled, who were killed. Something like 370,000 Muslims, uh, or about a third of the pre-war Muslim population, disappeared from the area. And then we come to the Treaty of Berlin. One of its clauses was uh, the establishment of Bulgaria and the autonomous province of Eastern Rumelia, which in 1885 became part of Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria faced the reality of having to deal with a large Muslim minority population, which at the beginning of the 20th century was something like 600,000 or you know, 15% of the population. Uh, as for the Muslims themselves, from being part of the wider Ottoman imperial polity, they turned into a minority community in the aspiring Bulgarian nation state. The fate of Bulgarian Muslims is part of a broader history of Muslim communities and minorities in the Balkans after the Congress of Berlin in 1878. Debates and laws emerged around the notions of citizenship and community, together with new forms of representation, such as the parliament and the constitution. Although Bulgaria was an autonomous principality within the Ottoman Empire, Russian politicians designed its constitution and were active in the Bulgarian state-building process. In autonomous eastern Rumelia, other great powers defined constitutional laws. Thus, until 1908, the Principality of Bulgaria was de facto independent, but features of Ottoman society, such as the capitulations, remained intact. It was in this context that the Bulgarian elites had to elaborate their national projects. These factors limited state sovereignty, but they also offered a chance for both Bulgarian elites and the local Muslim community to negotiate and put forward their respective interests. So Bulgaria's Muslims were not the first uh, Muslim community which, you know, was separated from the Ottoman Empire and found themselves under foreign rule. Uh, What was specific about uh, uh, the case of Bulgaria uh, was the size of the community and also the proportion that it represented as part of the entire population. So in the case of Serbia, uh, in the first years of Serbia's existence, there was something like 5,000 Muslims, and, or, you know, 1% of Serbia's population were Muslims. In the case of Greece, 11,000 Muslims, 2% of the population. In the case of Bulgaria in the 1880s, Uh, there were like 680,000 Muslims who made up up to a fifth of the country's population. So this was a very large population. And in this respect, Bulgaria is somewhat uh, similar to Bosnia. But what was different is that Bosnia came under the rule of Austro-Hungary. But the difference was that Austro-Hungary was a multi-ethnic and multi-religious empire. So it already had experience with administering diverse ethnic communities. Bulgaria, by comparison, was a budding nation state, so it had to work out many of its policies along the way. Another point I would like to underscore is that Bulgaria came in the aftermath of the Congress of Berlin, 1878, and the Berlin Treaty, which showed considerable preoccupation with guaranteeing the rights of various uh, non-dominant populations, you know, various communities and uh, minorities. So Bulgaria had to take this into consideration. The term minority itself was not used at the time. It acquired wider currency in the aftermath of the First World War. However, the concept of a minority is a non-dominant community that somehow needs to be accommodated and uh, to be protected was definitely there. Who are these Muslims? How could they be administered, governed, organized as a religious community? 
And also, uh, these Muslim minorities become an issue for the Ottomans. How do we protect former compatriots who remained under foreign rule? And it's a question of diplomacy, uh, but also this is something that finds its way in uh, political discourses. So, for example, the Young Turks, you know, the opposition movement to Sultan Abdul Hamid II, uh, they were quite concerned with the fate of former Ottoman Muslims who remained under the, the rule of uh, Balkan nation states. Uh, in this book, I want to tell a particular story. And this is the story of how Bulgaria's Muslims navigated the changing political environment between empire and nation state, and how they sought to claim a place in the larger modern world. The focus of this book are the activities of a movement for cultural reform and political mobilization of the community to transform Muslim society. I want to challenge the common portrayal of Bulgarian Muslims during the period as an inert, conservative community, you know, isolated, not being interested in anything that was, you know, going on around them. listening to a joint episode of the Ottoman History Podcast and the Southeast Passage. We are hosting Milena Metodieva, author of Between Empire and Nation, Muslim Reforms in the Balkans, to discuss how a Muslim community and their leaders navigated the historic change from Ottoman to Bulgarian rule. Like all communities, Bulgarian Muslims moved between the need to be recognized as a coherent collective and their differences in terms of political ideas. Between Empire and Nation is centered on the role of the reformists, a group who voiced the need for adapting to the new circumstances as Bulgarian citizens compared to the older Ottoman notables who remained in Bulgaria. They also had their Muslim opponents, whom they called the Turband, in order to discredit them as backward and conservative. However, these differences cannot be reduced to the question of religion, nor were they limited to Bulgarian politics. Even if Bulgaria, de facto, was not any more part of the Ottoman state, the local Muslim intellectuals kept the pace with new forces emerging in Ottoman politics and indeed contributed to shape these forces. 
discussions about the community became more prominent in the 1890s. It's a you know, younger generation of Muslims who were born uh, around uh, time of the war as they grew up in, in the Bulgarian nation state. Many of them were teachers. Uh, there were uh, you know, a few notable figures who actively participated in uh, debates uh, in the press. It's uh, quite significant to underscore the role uh, of uh, uh, the Young Turks. So many Young Turks fled to Western Europe, but quite a few actually ended up in neighboring Balkan nation states, you know, such as Bulgaria. And Bulgaria presented a particularly you know, good ground for Young Turk activity. The Bulgarian authorities were not particularly concerned with uh, the Young Turks. And quite significantly for the Young Turks, uh, there was a large Muslim population uh, and, uh, you know, they could chime in with uh, their uh, grievances. What contributed to the expansion of the Young Turks is the fact that many notable Young Turks were actually originally from Bulgaria. So they, they found uh, a common ground uh, with Muslim reformists. So there were, for example, you know, a number of common ideas. The admiration for science as the primary, you know, driving force of progress. Uh, also, you know, there was the anti establishment critique. The Young Turks, they were very critical of the Hamidian regime. You know, reformist Muslims in Bulgaria were critical of uh, the traditional, you know, leadership. Uh, and uh, also, of course, you know, there was the desire for uh, political change. There were, however, you know, some ideas that underwent some modification in the specific circumstances in Bulgaria. Uh, and one of them is uh, the attitude towards uh, religion or Islam. Uh, so, you know, as we know, the, the Young Turks were quite critical of religion. In Bulgaria, however, any criticism of Islam would have been widely unpopular among, you know, the local Muslims. What we see is actually an adjustment of this rhetoric. The argument was that if the community experienced, you know, any problems, it was not because of Islam. Uh, it was because of the corrupt uh, Muslim uh, religious traditional leadership. So campaigns against the traditional and religious leadership became one of the main activities of the reform uh, movement. So traditional leaders were called all kinds of disparaging uh, names, such as enemies of education. They were accused of being unpatriotic and uh, ignorant. Uh, but in reality, these traditional uh, or, you know, more conservative Muslim leaders, they were anything but ignorant and uninvested in the fate of the community. Uh, they, of course, you know, had their own ideas about how to safeguard uh, the Muslims' interests, but they did not turn into a more coherent ideology or project. One distinctive feature of these groups was uh, actually their association with uh, the Hamidian regime. So the political debates that developed in the Ottoman Empire were also replicated among Bulgaria's Muslims. After Bulgaria became a de facto independent nation-state, intense debates within the community's elite raised political factionalism to an unprecedented level. This started a circulation of the elite favorable to the reformists, for which generational differences played a central role. At the same time, there was a circulation of ideas moving between Bulgaria and the larger Ottoman and post-Ottoman space. In fact, the relationship between Muslim communities and non-Muslim state rulers raised issues discussed way beyond the former boundaries of the Ottoman Empire. The fate of Bulgaria's Muslims came to be linked to the fate of the Christian Slavs in Ottoman Macedonia and Thrace, who many uh, patriotic uh, Bulgarians at the time regarded as members of the Bulgarian nation. So the Bulgarian and the Ottoman authorities came to treat these communities within the context of what we can call a hostage population strategy, 
according to which uh, the good treatment of one community was expected to be reciprocated by similarly good treatment towards the other. Bulgarians, for example, introduced certain concessions towards Muslim schools uh, in anticipation of similar steps towards Bulgarian schools in the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottomans could put pressure on the Bulgarian exarchate, the Bulgarian church in Istanbul, uh, in response of the firing of Mufis in Bulgaria. Ordinary Bulgarians uh, came to connect the fate uh, of the two populations. Uh, in cases of revolt uh, in the Ottoman European provinces, Bulgarian anger uh, at the conduct of the Ottoman authorities you know, could turn against the local Muslims. And this was uh, particularly the case uh, in the aftermath of the 1902 and 1903 uh, uh, anti-Ottoman uprisings in Ottoman Macedonia, when there were a series of uh, incidents uh, against uh, uh, Bulgarian Muslims. But also Bulgarian Muslims uh, were not an isolated and inert community. They were very aware and they were very interested in what was going on around the world. So, you know, news and discussions of topics such as European alliances, uh, uh, imperialist rivalries in African conflict in the Far East, Japan's achievements, the rising wave of revolutionary upheaval, you know, filled the pages of local Muslim journals. Uh, and their implications for the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans were eagerly deliberated. Uh, among Bulgarian Muslims, uh, these developments contributed to a sense uh, of living in a larger interconnected world and uh, also living in a new age, uh, which was full of possibilities, but also charged with crisis. And they approached this world through the lens of their own experiences. Uh, and of course, you know, they showed particular interest in the fate of Muslims uh, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and uh, Bulgarian Muslims responded with this intensity and you know, very visceral understanding, partly because of their own experiences in the position of, uh, of a minority. One prominent you know, reformist, Ali Fehmif, underscored that dynastic marriages and dynasties would bring about greater uh, unity. But you know, once again, all these were you know, mostly discussions and debates, and there were no more concrete actions. So within this larger Muslim world, Bulgarian Muslims showed a particular interest in the Muslim community in Bosnia. Similarly to the Muslims of Bulgaria, they were former Ottoman Muslims ruled by Austro-Hungary in this case. Uh, and also Bulgarian Muslims followed the various uh, uh, endeavors for a reform among Bosnian Muslims. And the other community in which Bulgarian Muslims were interested were the Crimean Tatars. So, you know, they cherished particular admiration for the Jadid movement uh, among the Crimean Tatars and its leader, um, uh, Ismail Kaspinsky. So they uh, read Terjuman, which was the main organ of the Jadids. Terjuman itself engaged uh, with what was going on uh, in Bulgaria and recommended, for example, to its readers, various reformist uh, uh, newspapers coming out in Bulgaria. Kaspinsky came to visit uh, Bulgaria in 1906 and he spoke to an assembly of uh, uh, local, uh, uh, local Muslims. These publications were in Ottoman Turkish, the language uh, in which the records of various Muslim institutions in Bulgaria were maintained uh, at the time was Ottoman Turkish. Uh, but when it comes to Ottoman Turkish and the press, it allowed other audiences you know, elsewhere who are familiar with the language to read, but also to respond. The press in Bulgaria was free from uh, the censorship of the comedian uh, regime. Many reformist periodicals were quite open about criticism of the Ottoman uh, authorities. Journals were smuggled in the Ottoman European provinces where there was great demand for them, but they also reached uh, younger groups in Europe as well.
So far, we have discussed the dynamics at play within the community, as well as the connections linking the reformists with other political movements outside Bulgaria. But what did it mean to live and write as a reformist? What were the most important notions used by this group? How did religious, culture, and social topics interplay with the reformist's political position toward Bulgarian nationalism? The term civilization is uh, mentioned quite frequently in uh, reformist discussions. Medeniet, or the term civilized, about you know, civilized societies, Medeni. So for reformist Muslims, uh, the concept of civilization was inherently linked to education, uh, culture, and uh, progress, particularly modern knowledge and knowledge of the sciences. Also, in this context, reformist Muslims frequently underscored that Islam was not incompatible with modern civilization. This was an implicit argument against European rhetoric, according to which the Muslims were incapable of progress or culture, or Bulgarian rhetoric for that matter, which you know, replicated such European uh, arguments. So the reformers argued that if the Muslims wanted to reassert their rightful place in the modern world, they needed to embrace modern knowledge and the modern sciences. So in line with this reasoning, uh, their first major goal was the reform of Muslim education, introduction of science classes, introduction of languages such as French. Uh, But in their minds, actually, the reformers envisioned a thorough transformation of Muslim society and many of its institutions. So, you know, vakufs, pious foundations, had to support schools. In fact, you know, some reformers argued that actually this was the original purpose of vakufs. Also, you know, they envisioned new roles for women in society as uh, mothers of the nation. A number of them lobbied for more intensive reform of women's schools. Uh, Actually, it was exclusively men who dominated these discussions. So, you know, women came to be uh, more vocal in these debates uh, in Bulgaria, you know, much later in the interwar period. But for the reformers, uh, education had to continue beyond the school. So, you know, they were active in advocating other uh, institutions that could promote education. And one of them were Karadhanis, reading rooms. And they were meant to be sites of kind of, you know, new sociability instead of the traditional, you know, coffee houses. So in Karadhanis, Muslims were expected to gather, to read books, and also engage in uh, intellectual discussions informed by these books. They were not expected to sit around and engage in uh, lazy gossip. And another very uh, important vehicle was uh, theater, presented as a school of morals and uh, patriotism. Most of the theatrical repertoire were Ottoman plays, and the plays of the noted uh, Ottoman playwright Namak Kemal were particularly popular. But for a number of the most prominent reformist Muslims, the ultimate goal was the successful political mobilization of the community. So for them, education would pave the way to successful political emancipation. So on one hand, they were quite critical of Bulgarian nationalism, but on the other, it evoked you know, admiration. So they regarded the Bulgarian example as a success that began with schools, and then you know, ultimately it ended up with the liberation of Bulgaria. So Bulgaria was a constitutional monarchy and parliamentary democracy. And, you know, the constitution and the political regime were among the most liberal at the time. So all adult men, uh, regardless of property status or religious or ethnic background, had the right to vote. And uh, men uh, aged 30 and above could be elected. The only exception here is actually the case of, you know, Muslim Roma who could not vote uh, and they were excluded from such rights. So Muslims became part of Bulgarian politics early on. 
and Bulgarians had their reservations. But, you know, ultimately, political parties came to regard the large Muslim population as valuable electorate. And so there were always Muslim members in the Bulgarian parliament. But many Muslims realized that in spite of their large numbers, they were very often pawns in the hands of Bulgarian political parties rather than lobbying for advantages of their own community. So in these circumstances, uh, you know, some prominent reformist figures uh, started calling for the establishment of a special Muslim political party uh, or even a Muslim faction uh, in parliament. Once again, such ideas were not realized uh, in practice at this stage, but, you know, the discussions were there. For historians working on large-scale political transformations, such as the shift from imperial rule into a nation-state, newspapers are valuable sources to frame the discourse and the political language of historical actors. Yet a more difficult task is to reconstruct lives and experiences behind editorials and columns. Biographical information can reveal how these historical actors became directly exposed to important events of their time, but also how they changed their ideas, networks and roles throughout their lives. Life trajectories can be analyzed to discuss the impact of political and social change in a given context, and they add the individual dimension to our narratives. They also reveal how ruptures that we associate with the end of a regime, the collapse of an empire or a revolution, also conceal continuity and adaptation that, in this case, tie together critical moments such as the Young Turk Revolution, the Balkan Wars, the Armenian Genocide and the establishment of the Turkish Republic. In my book, I put a lot of efforts in uh, reconstructing the life trajectories of a number of prominent members of the Muslim community at the time, uh, reformist Muslims, uh, but also their rivals. So I wanted to bring out faces from the community and also avoid the anonymity that can be associated with general terms such as, you know, minority or community repeating these, you know, all the time. This also fits with my larger goal of the book of uh, underscoring the Muslims agency. One figure that you know I would like to uh, uh, mention here is uh, Ali Fehmi. He had uh, you know some of the most extraordinary contributions to the reform movement. He also came up uh, with more organized step-by-step program. Ali Fehmi was uh, born in Plovdiv or Filibe in Ottoman Turkish just before the onset of the Russo-Ottoman War. Uh, you know, so he was uh, the offshoot of, of a local prominent Muslim family. After graduating from the local Rushdie, he went on to study in the Ottoman Empire. He uh, enrolled in uh, the Mülkie, the elite school for civil servants uh, in the Ottoman Empire. He worked uh, as a teacher in various schools in the Ottoman Empire. It was also a young third sympathizer, and he was uh, busted, so he had to flee back to his family in Bulgaria. In 1897, he launched uh, Muvazene, the main uh, reformist publication. So in Bulgaria, Lifikmi continued his association with the Young Turks. In 1902, he even attended the Congress of the Ottoman Opposition in uh, Paris. But he was also particularly daring in his criticism towards the Bulgarians, uh, which made him kind of a thorn in their eyes. In 1905, he published an article uh, which was deemed uh, particularly incendiary by the Bulgarians. It was seen as something that was encouraging the Muslims to revolt. And what the articles did was ask the question that, you know, many Muslims in Bulgaria were probably asking themselves at the time. In the case of war between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, which was uh, not unlikely, what were the Muslims going to do? 
the Bulgarian authorities. They issued a, a warrant for his arrest. He, however, you know, managed to escape to uh, Europe. So he spent some time in Geneva. And then he moved to Egypt, where again, he was associated with uh, Young Turk circles. And then in, in 1907, uh, he went to Afghanistan. He responded uh, uh, to an invitation from the Emir of Afghanistan recruiting uh, Ottoman emigres to help with uh, uh, reforming uh, local schools. So he spent some time there and uh, eventually returned to the Ottoman Empire after the Antwerp Revolution. So from this point on, uh, the information about his life uh, is somewhat sketchy. He tried publishing a journal. He tried to enter Ottoman politics, but you know he was not nearly as successful as he was in Bulgaria. And then uh, during the Balkan Wars, he was a member of one of the Ottoman commissions, which was in charge of resettling Muslim refugees fleeing from the Balkan Wars throughout Anatolia. The next information I have about him is that during the First World War, he was a member of another population management commission, which was in charge of deporting Ottoman Armenians. And then shortly after the First World War, he was uh, murdered, uh, most probably by an Armenian. So figures like that who were active in reform endeavors in Bulgaria played a role not just in the Bulgarian context. Alifekmi is one example of one such prominent figure. But, you know, there are other similarities. So, for example, Tahir Lutfi, he was another prominent reformist, another graduate of the Mülke in the Ottoman Empire. He was from Rusek. Again, he was a young Turkey, had to flee back to Bulgaria because he was persecuted. And then he, you know, managed to become a member of the Bulgarian parliament. But then after the First World War, he also emigrated to the budding Turkish Republic. And he was part of the diplomatic staff in various Balkan states and, you know, also in the Middle East. My uh, next project on which, you know, I'm embarking is about the trajectories of Muslim migrants from the Balkans. I want to see where they go and what they do. The question for me is how they reshape the late Ottoman Empire or the early Turkish Republic. The end of Ottoman rule in Bulgaria was not clear-cut. Rather, the Ottoman Empire was one of the three important actors that participated in and fostered the transformation of Muslim communities in the new Bulgarian state. The 1877-78 Russian-Ottoman War provoked a tidal violence that led to unprecedented displacement of people and to the de facto independence of Bulgaria. To a certain extent, and in certain areas of Bulgarian state building, new elites had to rely on Ottoman legislation legacy. As Milena Metodieva puts it in her book, the Ottomans did not miss opportunities to remind the country of its autonomous position, occasionally delivering nonchalant jabs. Given the significant number of the Bulgarian Muslims and their vicinity to the imperial capital, Bulgarian Muslims were still entangled with the fate of the Ottoman Empire, although the Bulgarian state equally aimed to unmake this entanglement. The Muslim community's development and transformation interested the Ottoman elites during the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid II and in the second constitutional period. The community's leaders obtained moral and financial aid from the Ottoman state, and mobility brought many intellectuals and activists from Bulgaria to Istanbul and back. It is in this relationship that we can locate the developments of the Vakuf issue, the political mobilization, the educational question, and the question of how to organize Muslim religious authorities. In addition, the treatment of the Muslims in Bulgaria increasingly came to be seen as leverage both in Ottoman and Bulgarian strategies, with regard to the Slavic-speaking subjects living in the Ottoman Empire. 
The history of human displacement and of the circulation of ideas between the Balkans and Anatolia has recently drawn the attention of scholars looking beyond standard narratives about the making of modern nation-states that in the past have been usually explained only through internal factors. The trajectory of the Muslim community in Bulgaria at the turn of the 20th century reminds us of the many concurring visions of belonging to religious and national collectivities and to transnational spaces of intellectual and political exchange across state borders. If you want to know more about this trajectory, check out Milena Metodieva's Between Empire and Nation, Muslim Reform in the Balkans, out at Stanford University Press. You can also find a bibliography on the topic on our websites, thesoutheastpassage.com and ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Don't forget to join our social media platforms where you can interact with our community of followers and stay up to date with new releases. This was all for today. Until next time, take care.